0: we continue in our legacy series, Lessons from the Life of Absalom. I'm going to ask you to turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 15. We're going to read the first six verses this morning. 2 Samuel chapter 15, verses 1 through 6. Chapter 15, 1 through 6. When I hear the pages stop rustling, then I know we've all kind of, we're all there. Of course, the kids over here, don't, I don't hear rustling from them. I hear taps on the phone to get to where they're supposed to go. Verse 1, after this, Absalom got himself a chariot and horses and 50 men to run before him. And Absalom used to rise early and stand by the way of the gate. And when any man had a dispute to come before the king for judgment, Absalom would call to him and say, From what city are you? And when he said, Your servant is such and such tribe of Israel, Absalom would say to him, See, your claims are good and right, but there is no man designated by the king to hear you. And then Absalom would say, oh, that I were judge in the land, then every man with a dispute or a cause might come to me and I would give him justice. And whenever a man came near to pay homage to him, he would put out his hand and take hold of him and kiss him. And thus Absalom did to all of Israel who came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. Before we move into discussing this text, we have to connect last week's text to this text. Chapter 14 ends with a very promising picture, does it not? So he, Absalom, came to the king David and bowed himself on his face to the ground before the king, and the king kissed Absalom. From external appearances of this whole situation, from the outside looking in, we have arrived at reconciliation. David and Absalom have made things right. But there is one giant, huge problem with this scene. There is something massively missing repentance there is no talk at all of absalom repenting for the murder of his brother there is no discussion at all about the forgiveness that david extends to absalom and let me make this very clear there is no reconciliation without repentance. Church, we must get that clear. There is no reconciliation without repentance. Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, 8 through 10, he speaks of godly grief that leads to repentance, and repentance leads to reconciliation. So godly grief leads to repentance, and repentance leads to reconciliation. But a false grief, a worldly grief, leads to death, Paul says. Absalom did not repent, and therefore could not be forgiven. This is a link between the end of 14 and the beginning of 15. When we read what's happening in 15, we're wondering, how did we get from Absalom bowing down before his dad and his dad kissing him to Absalom conspiring against his father? Because there was no repentance that took place. There was no reconciliation that took place. There there was no forgiveness that took place. And I want to speak just for a minute before we even get into our text about what the indicators are that someone has truly repented. How do you know if someone has truly repented? What are things we're looking for? What are things David should have been looking for to tell him that Absalom truly is repentant about what he's done? I'm gonna give us five things and they're gonna be up on the screen. What are the indicators that someone has truly repented? Number one, the repentant person accepts full responsibility for his or her actions. True repentance doesn't make excuses. True repentance doesn't say, well, you know, if I've done anything to offend you, that's nonsense, guys. That's not repentance. Repentance is saying, I am sorry that I did this to you. It was wrong and I should not have done it. And I'm taking full responsibility for for my fault and my sin perpetrated against you. Number two, the repentant person welcomes accountability. In other words, the individual doesn't resent the fact that change will need to be observed. If you are truly repentant of something and you, you take responsibility for it, you don't have a problem with the victim saying to you, Listen, I accept your apology and that you're taking responsibility, but you do know I have to observe real change in you before I can trust you again. Right? Number three. The repentant person does not try to downplay the hurtful behavior. You know, I I did this to you, but you know, I didn't mean it. It doesn't doesn't matter if you meant it or not. You sinned against me. You know, I mean, I know that I did this, but you got to understand, you know, my, my background and you know, and I know I, I know I did this to you and I sinned against you in this way, but you, you, you just got to understand the, the circumstances of, of which I, that happened. No, a repentant person doesn't try to downplay their hurtful behavior. Instead, oh, number four, sorry. The repentant person does not continue in their hurtful behavior, but instead wants nothing more than to change. And then number five, the repentant person makes restitution when necessary. Not just apology, but then making it right. Whatever that may mean. Whether it is financial restitution, whether it is relational restitution, whether it is uh, whatever that restitution may be, they're willing to give it. So, if someone is truly repentant, what they have done they will accept full responsibility they will welcome accountability they won't downplay the hurtful behavior they won't continue in the hurtful behavior and they will make restitution when necessary but because in this situation with absalom no real repentance took place there was no real forgiveness that took place either David didn't have real forgiveness for Absalom. So now I want to give us five indicators of true forgiveness. These five indicators come from uh, Regen is an organization that I believe was started. Uh, a version of it was started by Rick Warren. And then uh, it was kind of adopted and uh, the name of it was changed. And now there's uh, a multitude of churches that have um, Region ministry and in one of the books they give these five indicators of true forgiveness how do you know that what are the indicators that you've forgiven someone what are the things we're looking for number one forgiveness is not excusing sin or claiming that the wrong suffered is now okay You ever apologize to someone and they say, oh, don't worry about it? Forgiveness doesn't say that. Forgiveness says, no, what you did was wrong, and it hurt me. There's no excuse for what you did. Number two, forgiveness is not freeing the guilty from justice. It's not saying, no consequences. I forgive you and there's no consequences. Because I forgive you. No, that's not what forgiveness is either. Number three, forgiveness is not denying your hurt or stuffing your anger down. It's okay to be angry when somebody hurts you. Right? Processing through that pain, processing through that anger. It's not denying that you've been hurt and just shoving that all down and acting like everything's fine. No, forgiveness doesn't have to have that either. Number four, forgiveness is not a feeling, but an act of the will. You don't have to feel a certain way to forgive somebody. You can still forgive them. In fact, forgiveness is You You repent, I give forgiveness. There is this false notion out there that you can forgive somebody if they haven't repented. That's not true. Some, somewhere along the way, Christians made that up. Somewhere along the way, somebody started telling people, listen, I know they haven't asked for forgiveness. I know they haven't repented. I know they haven't taken any responsibility for it, but you just forgive them anyway. No, there's nowhere in the Bible that says that. Now, you can decide not to be bitter. You can have a heart that is open to forgive whenever they come to you. You can ask the Lord to make sure that you're not resentful, but forgiveness is transactional. When somebody comes and asks for forgiveness, they repent, then I can give them forgiveness. You're not forgiven by God as if God just wipes away the slate and sweeps it under the rug and doesn't ever have to deal with it again. No, the reason that you are forgiven is because you repent. Repent and believe on the name of the Lord. Repent and be reconciled. Repentance is a requirement for forgiveness. And so it is in our relationships. Now, I can decide not to harbor bitterness against you. I can decide not to be resentful against you. I can have a heart open and willing and waiting to pour out forgiveness, but I cannot forgive you until you repent. It is transactional. So that's why it's an act of the will. It doesn't matter how I feel. When you come to me and you ask for forgiveness, I willfully forgive. And then number five, forgiveness is not trust. Just because I forgive you doesn't mean I don't have boundaries that I've put up to allow you to build trust again, allow you to build up that accountability again. It's not allowing someone who hurt you to forgive that person and then allow them right back into the space that allowed the hurt to begin with. You put up boundaries and you say, now you can build that trust back up. But I'm not just giving you 100% of my trust. Forgiveness doesn't equal trust. And I think we've got that twisted too, where we think, well, I forgive you, so therefore I I just have to let you back into the same space that I, I had you in before. That's not true. That's not good for you, and it's not good for that person either. Either way, it's not good. So forgiveness is not excusing the sin or claiming the wrong. That was suffered is now okay. It's not freeing the guilty of justice or consequences. It's not denying that you're hurt and stuffing your anger down. It's not feeling, but it's an act of the will and forgiveness isn't trust. Now, here's what I am arguing. I am arguing that Absalom did not repent, and David did not forgive. That there was no real reconciliation between these two. They swept it under the rug. They just washed over it. Absalom wanted the consequences of his actions removed. That's why he came back to David. He didn't come to David because he's repentant. There is no mention of that in Scripture. He came because he wanted the consequences. Remember, he was was allowed to come back home, but he couldn't come into Jerusalem and come into the palace. He couldn't come before his father. He wanted that consequence taken away. And as we're going to see, what he really wanted was access to the people again. That's what he wanted. He wanted access to the people. When we allow people back in our good graces without repentance and proper forgiveness, all we are going to do is further the evil that occurs. We are allowing the space for more evil to occur. But when repentance takes place and proper forgiveness takes place, now we can address what's going down and what happened. David and Absalom just pushed down what happened. Let's just, act like it, let's just move on from it. Let's just act like it's fine. Let's, just, let's not really deal with it. That's what's happened here. And it has has made the space for the evil that is about to be perpetrated by Absalom. Now, I know that we have heard things other than this when it comes to relational situations. And that's why our relationships are in a mess. Because we're not actually taking a biblical approach to... if, If I hurt my wife, if I sin against her, It is not her job just to act like it's no big deal. Guess what? If if she acts like it's no big deal, if she sweeps it under the rug, if she doesn't address it, guess what she is creating room for? Me just to do it again. And to do it again. And to do it again. But if I sin against her and she demands repentance from me, she demands that I say that I'm truly sorry for the thing that I did, and I ask for forgiveness, and she forgives me. Now we've reconciled. You do know, church, that the problems in our relationships are not the ruptures. Ruptures happen every day in relationships, do they not? Today, in some way, I'm going to sin against Jessica, and she's probably going to sin against me. I mean, she's probably really going to sin against me, y'all. Y'all don't even know. Those ruptures are not the problem. The problem is the lack of reconciliation. You hear me? Ruptures are gonna take place all the time. Rupture, reconciliation, that's what relationships are. The problem comes is when there's a rupture, no reconciliation, we sweep it under the rug, what happens to that rupture? It gets bigger and it gets bigger and it gets bigger And it gets bigger and it leaves space and room for more sin and more evil to be perpetrated. What has happened here (coughs) is David hasn't forgiven Absalom because Absalom hasn't repented. The rupture that took place in their relationship has not been mended. And what's going to happen is we've left space for more sin. David didn't hold his son accountable. And he left space for more sin, and then for more sin, and then for more sin. Y'all with me? So what I want to do for the rest of our time, and I still got 30 minutes, y'all, is I want to look at this text, and I want to see six things that Absalom used to try to overthrow his father. The father that he just bowed down to, now he is planning and plotting a conspiracy to overthrow his dad. You see what I'm talking about about the rupture? Rupture didn't get take place. Now it's leaving space to destroy his own father because real accountability didn't take place. So the first thing I want you to see, and, and by the way, Absalom is going to turn into a political demagogue. And here's what a demagogue is. A demagogue is someone who comes to people in a political stance and he tricks people or he uses the gifts that he has to sway the people onto his side. That his way is the only way. The first thing is pride. We are told in Scripture that Absalom was a handsome And charming man. He was of royal blood on both sides of his family. He was the only son of all of David's sons who could say, I've got royal blood on both sides. My grandfather is a king. My father is a king. And my mother is a princess. So this guy's got all this stuff working for him. I mean, he is, he is handsome, he is charming, he is royalty. I mean, he has all of this working for him. And, and all the things that would make people, all the things that would be desirable to the flesh, he's got it. All the stuff, remember, remember in the Old Testament too, when Saul becomes the first king of Israel, and he stands head and shoulders taller than everybody else. Like, from the outside looking in, Saul's the guy you want as king. I think Absalom is kind of in that same vein. You look at Absalom and you're like, this dude, he's got it. This is the guy we want running things for us. And Absalom deeply cares about those things. He deeply cares about the way that he looks. Remember, he he lets his hair grow and then he cuts his hair and he's very concerned. Brother James talked about something's wrong. If a man's weighing his hair to see how much it weighs, uh, He cares deeply about this. And in fact, he is going to parade it in front of the people. Once David gives him access to Jerusalem again, he is going to parade this around. Verse 1 says that he gets a chariot and horses and 50 men to run before him. He is going to parade his splendor and his power and his majesty throughout the city. All of this pomp, he is going to parade it throughout the city. It is, look at me and look what I've got. Look at my charm, look at my majesty, look at my strength, look at my power. Look at me, look at me, look at me. Think that I'm something. That's what he's doing. Convincing the people that this is how royalty should act. Now, this is a big difference from David. David was a humble king. David was a humble leader. Absalom is demonstrating the other thing. You don't need a humble leader. You need a a boisterous, loud, look-at-me leader. That's what you need. Not like David. Do it this way. This is the way royalty should act. So he didn't get this idea from David. So I started wondering, well, where would he get the idea that this is the way to do it? Could it be from his grandfather on his mother's side? His grandfather was a king of Geshur. We don't know that for sure, but we do know this. This is how the pagan kings flaunted themselves. So what is Absalom doing? Absalom is saying, I don't want to be a king like my father. I want to be a king like all the other kings. I want to be a king with that, that brags, has this braggadocious attitude and, and parades himself as great in front of the people. That's what he's doing. And he knew the people would be wowed by it. He knew how people work. Now, everything that we're gonna say here, by the way, applies to politicians today. My goodness, does it not apply to politicians today? The pride and the arrogance of the politicians that we see today is mind blowing. Number two, not only pride, disingenuity. Here's what Absalom would do. He would parade himself. Then he would do his best to try to make it seem that he cared about the people. By the way, he doesn't care about the people. But he wants it, wants it to seem like he cares about the people. Verse 2 tells us, he would rise up early, stand before the gate, and when any man had disputes, they'd come before the king for judgment. Absalom would call out to him and say, from what city are you from? And when he said, your servant is from such and such a tribe of Israel. So what he would do is he would get up early in the morning, and he would go. Now, he's putting in work. He's putting in work to make the people feel like he cares about it. And he would go to the city and he would stand there. And when people would come from other tribes to Jerusalem to get their situations judged, he would stand there and say, where are you guys from? What are you doing here? He would would work the people. He would work the crowd. He didn't care about them, but he cared about using them. You catch that? He didn't care about them, but he cared about using them. He wanted them to think he cared about them. I can just see him furrowing his brow in in concentration as he listened to their stories. Where are you from? What's going on? What's happened? I can hear him kind of grunting, you know, like, "Mm, that's terrible. I can't believe that happened to you. Tell tell me more. Where are you from? You see what he's doing, right? He's just playing. He's playing this relationship that he doesn't have with them. He's playing it up. He's working these people over to convince them that he cares for them. This fake empathy that he has. All of this is disingenuous. All of this is fake. All of this is to win the people over. Number three, undermining. He uses pride. He uses disingenuity. And now he uses undermining. Absalom wanted the people to think he was on their side. I care about you and I'm on your side. And he would do this by undermining his father. Verse 3 tells us after, that, after he heard where the people are from and what, he, what they were going through and he pretended to care for them, he would say, see, your claims are good and right, but there is no man designated by the king to hear, hear, hear this for you. You see what he's doing? He's undermining David. He's undermining David. He's throwing this unfortunate clause. He's exacerbating the dissatisfaction with the system and the leader. He wanted them to begin to see David and the way David ran the nation as wrong and then turn around and say, Listen, unfortunately, there's no one here. The way the king deals with you, the way the king brings about justice, no one's here to do that for you. I care, David doesn't. I care, David doesn't. It's a mean of causing division by undermining, questioning the authority of David, stoking the fires of dissatisfaction and discontentment, Contentment. Bringing the, per- the people further away from David and closer to him. You see what he's doing, right? we got pride. We've got disingenuity. We've got undermining. In verse 4, we got hypocrisy. Once the people got frustrated with David and his lack of concern, Absalom would then step in and say, Oh, but if I were the judge in the land, I'd take care of you guys. I'd take care of you guys. If I were a judge in the land, then every man with a dispute or a cause might come to me, and I will be the one to give justice. Nobody else will do it for you, but I will do it for you. Church, Absalom was no judge. Absalom didn't have the wisdom, he didn't have the judgments. He didn't have what it would take to be a good judge. This dude was a murderer and a conspirator, not, not a faithful judge that could rule over the people. But here's where the hypocrisy comes into play. He didn't need to be a judge. He just needed to pretend like he would be a good one. He doesn't have to be a judge. He just has to pretend like he would be a good judge so the people would want him rather than David. He just could play at. He didn't have to judge anything. He just needed to convince the people, I will be what you want and what you need. He is pretending and presenting himself as the champion of the people. Isn't it amazing that every one of our politicians who has ever run for president of the United States, you know what they all run on? I'm the person, I'm the man for the people. They all say it. And I don't believe any of them. But they all say it. You've got the right and the left. Both candidates will say, I'm the person for the people. Well, you can't both be for the people because you got different policies. So that doesn't make any sense. But they all are trying to convince us, I'm the one for the people. You notice how the political strategy hasn't changed? It goes all the way back to right here in 2 Samuel. (laughs) Pride, not being genuine, undermining, now hypocrisy. It's as if he was saying, I am royalty like David, but I care about you and I will do for you what David will not do for you. Trust me, I'll be your hero, I'll be your Messiah. Complete hypocrisy. He doesn't care one bit about actually being for the people. He's play acting. Oh, that I were the judge and not David. Then I would make sure that you guys are treated the way you're supposed to be treated. Then in verse 5, he manipulates. As the days went by, people began to believe this. They began to believe Absalom. You know what? David doesn't care for us. I know that David went to war and he shed his own blood. And I know that David, you know, has killed his tens of thousands. And I I know, but you know what? I'm kind of liking this Absalom guy. I mean, you know, he's praying around and really seems to care for us and you know what if he was in charge, man, I think I think we would be heard more than David. They begin to buy into this and they became now coming to him to pay him homage. They would come before him verse 5 says They would come to him, and they would pay homage to him, and he would put out his hand, take hold of him, and kiss him. This is taking manipulation to the next level. This language here in verse 5 indicates that what he was doing was refusing to accept praise from the people. But instead, he would kiss them and raise them up as his equal. What a joke. Think, Think about what he's doing. He's getting a chariot and horse and 50 men parading himself around Jerusalem wanting people to think he's awesome. And then when they say he's awesome, he goes, oh, no, 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 I'm just one of you guys well, then why are you parading around with 50 bodyguards and just marching in the city, getting everybody's attention to you? You know, you're this royalty. You're this grand gesture of what, it, what royalty should look like. And then when they pay homage to you, you're like, no, 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 I'm just one of you guys. What a joke. What manipulation. He's just working on them. Can get, he's, he's just telling them everything they want to hear. That's what our politicians do today. They tell their base what their base wants to hear. He's pretending to be down with the people. I'm down with the people. I'm the one that cares about you. This other person doesn't care about you. I care about you. David doesn't care about you. It's me. I'm one of you. That's why I care about you. I know what you're going through. I've been there. You ain't been there. You're royalty on both sides of your family. You don't see yourself as an equal to these people. But you're going to manipulate that. Verse 6. And what is the final result of all this demagoguery? It works. It all works. It took him four years, but it worked. Absalom's ultimate desire was to usurp the throne from his father David. But in order to do that, he needed to usurp the hearts of the people from David. And that's exactly what he does. The word stole here in verse 6, when it says Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel, that word stole doesn't mean he cheated them. It actually means to strategically... Impress and seduce. How did Absalom steal the hearts of the people? He strategically impressed and seduced the people through their minds. Now, these people were gullible. One commentator said, Hearts like this only get stolen if they were already distant. If they were really loyal to David, they wouldn't have got stolen away like this. But Absalom strategically impressed the people, strategically seduced the people, and used their gullibility to win them over. I will argue this, to win their love almost without them knowing how devoted they had become. You may tell you, side note, let's just pause. You know why we have such a divide in this country politically? You know why the, the political divide is so great? I am convinced it's because the extremes on the right and the left are so devoted to political ideology, they don't even realize how devoted they are. That's why it almost looks cultish. On either side. You go to the extreme right and the extreme left, it's cultish, y'all. And the reason it's cultish is because people are so, they've been so moved by a politician, they don't even realize how far they've drifted to the right and to the left, to the extremes. Things happen in this country, riots insurrections, violence, mob-like attitude. The reason why that happens is because people have been pulled so far to the left or so far to the right, and they don't realize how far they've been pulled in their ideologies that now the other side, they're just demonic. They're evil. They're wicked. They, they're, they're all going to hell. They don't even love the country. They just, want, they just want it for their own power. They just want it for their own... Both sides say it. So don't leave here and say, well, Neil was bashing this side. I'm bashing them all, y'all. Bashing them all. (laughs) And we, the people, so easily get pulled to the extremes and we don't even realize we're being pulled to the extremes. Y'all, this is a true story that happened two weeks ago. A pastor preached a message on the Beatitudes. A Protestant conservative person that we would agree with theologically preached a message on the Beatitudes and a member of his church came up to him and said we got a problem with the woke stuff you've been teaching so now Jesus is too woke for the church what are we doing what are we doing that now we have people sitting in our pews that don't like the teaching of Jesus because it's just, it seems too loving. It seems too gracious. It seems too merciful. Don't you know the other side needs to be hung for their treason? Y'all may get mad. I'm telling you the truth, whether you want to hear it or not. This is the truth. And we have churches that are being divided by politics not Jesus in his kingdom. And the reason that's happening is because we don't realize how far we're being pulled to one side or the other. This is what Absalom has done. He has pulled the people. They may have been dissatisfied with David, but they were living in peace. they I mean, David was, was running the nation as it should be done. He was not a great father, but he was a great king. And he... And and yet, these people are pulled so far away that in the next verses, David is going to have to run for his life. We got got pulled so far. We got got duped so far. We got taken so far. Thank God, this is not the, the case for this church. But many churches, I have heard testimony after testimony after testimony that people get more mad about something the pastor says politically or they they get more riled up or they get more excited about something the pastor says politically than anything they say biblically. What is wrong with us? What is wrong with us? The people had their hearts stolen. And so as a means of application, let me first say this. We must be on our guard for any political leader, for any religious leader, for anybody who would step in and try to steal your heart from where it needs to be. Be on guard for it. Ask these questions. Are they manipulating? Are they being prideful? Are they being disingenuous? Are they being undermining? Are they are they manipulating? Are they being hypocrites? Because if they are, they may just be trying to steal your heart. Church, listen to me. When leaders, not just political leaders, religious leaders, how do you think how do you think religious cults get started? Same kind of thing, and people's hearts get stolen away, and then they don't even realize how far they've drifted. And they say, how did we get here? Have y'all seen, um, there's a, a documentary. Um, I don't know what it's on. Shiny Happy People, what it's on? Netflix, called Shiny Happy People. Amazon Prime. Jessica, babe. Uh, we can reconcile later about that. Uh, Shiny Happy People. It is about, um, they kind of follow um, the Duggar family. There was a video, the 19 kids and counting. It was a show on uh, TLC for a really, really long time. They got really involved in um, a movement that was a discipleship movement. And the stuff that these people in this movement were doing on how to raise a family and how to conduct a church... Y'all, it is some scary, cultish nonsense. What's crazy is I know people who were involved in that movement, and do you know what they say now? I can't believe we got duped. I can't believe that I believe some of the stuff I believe and that I got taken. Now, is that, was that their motivation to begin with? Where they're like, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to listen to this guy. Bill Gothard was his name. I'm going to listen to this guy, and I'm going to... Do what he says, and eventually I'm going to be a part of this crazy movement, that this extreme movement. Y'all, I mean, the video. They will have conferences where the men would sit in a chair. They have video of this. Would sit in a chair, call up children from out of the stands, and teach the parents how to spank their children on stage. And a little seven-year-old boy goes and sits in one of the ministers' lap, and he, he lightly slaps his butt in front of the whole congregation, teaching them how to, how to discipline. They, they get involved in stuff called, called, uh, called blanketing or blanket technique, where they take a baby that can barely crawl, and they put a baby on a blanket, and they put their favorite toy outside of the blanket, and as soon as that baby gets to the edge, they will say no. And when the baby takes one step, puts one hand over it, they smack that hand. And move the baby back and they leave the toy and they do it again and they do it again until the baby is so messed up that he wouldn't dare leave that blanket because he knows if I leave that blanket, I'm going to get popped. These were techniques being used by Christians in conferences and thousands of people were adopting this behavior in their churches. Now, my question to you is this. Did the people that, that ended up doing that, was, do you think at the beginning that was their motivation? No. They wanted to honor the Lord. They, they wanted to, to raise their family right. But they got swayed. They got, they got duped. They got manipulated. They got brought all the way to a place that they never dreamed they would have been. We must be on guard, church. I'm saying this with as much earnest as I can. We must be on guard for people who would use pride who would use disingenuity, who would use undermining, who would use hypocrisy, and who would use manipulation. We must be on guard. That, so people like that do not steal our hearts away from where we need to be. And I only preach this message because I love us. I love our church. I love the people here. And I don't want to see any of us in a place that years from now we may look back and go, how, I'm so foolish. How did I end up doing that and believing that and being there? You got your heart stolen away. Second, as a means of application, let me say this. We must make sure, we must make sure that we don't become an Absalom. So we, don't, we can't get duped by Absaloms, but we have to make sure we don't become Absaloms. You say, well, I'm not going to be a political or religious leader. How can, I, how can I be an Absalom? Let me ask you a question. Have you ever used pride, disingenuity, hypocrisy, or, or manipulation in your relationships? Maybe to undermine somebody else in the relationship? Maybe to make yourself look good in the relationship so the other person looks bad in the relationship? Have you ever used these things? Have you ever usurped somebody else's heart, tried to take somebody else's heart so that that heart was yours and not this other person's? That's all the spirit of Absalom. That's all related. That's all related to the same thing. So don't think for a second that we can't become Absalom like. It may not be on a giant scale. It may not be a Bill Gothard or it may not be a political leader. It may not be a religious cult that you're leading. But it may be in your relationships. Third point of application where we have sinned against others, we must make sure that we repent truly. Where you have sinned against others, you must truly repent. Fourth and final application. If you have been sinned against and people come to you and truly repent, you are to forgive. Even if you're hurt, even if you're broken, even if it devastated you, you are to forgive. Now, remember the things that we talked about, what forgiveness is and what it isn't but you are to forgive. So the four points of application. Don't be duped by Absaloms. Don't have your heart stolen away by Absaloms. Don't become an Absalom yourself in your relationships. Don't use pride, disingenuity, and, and undermining and usurping and hypocrisy to manipulate and to work relationships. Where you have sinned, repent truly. And when you have been sinned against, when people repent... Forgive freely. Calvary Hill, I love you. I love you. If I didn't love you, I would not be at this church. If we as pastors did not love the people here, we would be gone. We are here because we love. And it is our job to shepherd at times, to protect, to say things that need to be said. Can you, can you imagine? Say this and I'm done. Can you imagine if you, if you came to church and the pastor never said anything that troubled you or, or made you convicted or stepped on your toes at all? I mean, can you imagine if you came to a church where the pastor never preached anything that you didn't go, oh, I don't know, I don't know, I didn't like that. That made me feel some kind of way. I didn't didn't like that conviction. I didn't like what he said. Now, I'm not saying we're always going to say everything right. So go and test what we say. Think about what we say. You may just find that you needed to be feeling some kind of way. I don't want people to be duped by Absalom's in our church and me, and me and Brother James have to say, if we just would have warned them more, maybe they wouldn't have gone that way. It, maybe if we just would have said it a little plainer, maybe if we just would have preached about not getting hearts stolen, then maybe that wouldn't have happened. You know David Koresh used to go to First Baptist Church, Saxe? Now, some of the kids are like, David Koresh? Those of you that can remember, you know he used to go to First Baptist Church, Saxe. How does a guy go to a, a First Baptist Church, end up a cult, got his heart stolen, and then stole other people's hearts? Brother Billy Harris wasn't, in, wasn't preaching that morning with David Koresh, which wasn't his name at the time, sitting in the back. He had no clue that one day Someone who was a part of his church was going to be leading a cult. But there he was, sitting in the congregation. Don't think we can't be duped, church. Don't think we can't be impressed and have our hearts stolen. Don't think we can't be the one that steals hearts. Please, prayerfully, think about this message this morning.